This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks for joining us, everybody. During this pandemic, it's become more obvious to a lot of Americans how much power the unelected so-called experts have in determining policies that affect every one of us. And for many of us, that is a problematic scenario. But what if we yield to this same scenario on another front of the healthcare field, that of bioethics? As my next guest points out, yielding to bioethical technocrats would be particularly perilous since the experts placed in charge of policy would be bioethicists whose predominant views disparage the sanctity of human life. And it will shock you when you learn what some of these bioethicists are actually saying out there, especially about human life in the COVID-19 era. So we're going to tackle it all now with author and bioethics expert Wesley J. Smith, chair of the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, consultant to the Patients' Rights Council and writer over at National Review. He has a great piece out on this subject, The Bioethicist Pandemic at spectator.org. Wesley, always great to have you here. Thank you, Janet. Good to talk to you and uh, good talk to your listeners. Thank you so much. You say we have to societally isolate from the bioethicist pandemic, and I think that's really good advice. Tell people what's going on out there. Yeah, you know, bioethics is a field that uh, many people might have generally heard of but don't know a whole lot about because most of the discourse takes place above the public awareness. The New York Times doesn't tend to cover what they're saying to each other about their articles, uh, but they have tremendous influence. These are the people who are, teach at our major universities, the doctors of tomorrow, the nurses of tomorrow. They testify in court uh, cases. They, uh, they advise the government on public policies and, and uh, legislation. And it, it would be one thing if uh, this field was dominated by people who believe in the Hippocratic Oath right. or who believe in the sanctity of life, human life. But it isn't. The people who dominate the field, the people who teach at Harvard, the people who teach at Princeton, the people who teach uh, at um, Oxford and Cambridge and, and uh, all those places, unless, let's, unless it's a, like a Catholic university or something, um, disdain the sanctity of human life. And they would replace that approach with what is called the quality of life approach, which can lead to some very dire consequences to the most weak and vulnerable among us. Well, right. You cite a number of these bioethicists in your piece, and I was very shocked when I was reading about even in a pandemic, you have some of these bioethicists from Oxford, who, professors at Oxford, who want a license to permit seriously ill COVID-19 patients to be consensually experimented upon, even if the research is dangerous, and it goes downhill from there. What, what are these men trying to suggest COVID-19 patients ought to do? Well, they're saying that uh, elderly COVID-19 patients uh, now understand that in this quality of life approach, an elderly person's value may have less uh, worth than a younger person's value. It's sometimes called quality adjusted life year. And that's a form of healthcare rationing where somebody who has a a vital uh, life, uh, very healthy, will be worth more in terms of uh, determining healthcare uh, coverage and so forth than somebody, let's say, who's disabled. Uh, and we can get into that in more detail if you'd like. 
But they 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 made a uh, and they published this in what's called the Journal of Medical Ethics, which is a very major bioethics publication. And they not only said that that elderly people should be experimented on if it would help them, but also they should be allowed to volunteer to be experimented on in terms of dangerous experiments if it would not help them uh, if they if they were sick. They also uh, argued, and this is, you know, it's in a, from Oxford University in one of the world's major bioethics journals, so this isn't somebody in a corner wearing a tinfoil hat, right? Right. Uh, they also argued that uh, if somebody got very sick and were euthanized, euthanasia is legal, that rather than kill them, they should actually kill them by harvesting their organs. So in other words, a live harvest, which of course results in death. Because you see, when you give up the sanctity of human life, you start to look at people as commodities. Uh, And it's uh, it's really um, uh, an awful thing. And then they also said that uh, people who... um, uh, are at significant risk for this, should allow themselves to be intentionally basically infected with COVID if they're, you know, with a vaccine uh, experiment. And then if, they, but only if they signed a living will saying that if they became seriously ill, they would not want life-sustaining care. So in other words, all right, we're going to test a, a vaccine on you or some treatments on you. We're going to intentionally infect you. And if that results in your serious illness, we're not going to give you the kind of life-sustaining treatment that might save your life. When you, have, when you write something like that by very influential people in, in healthcare who have a lot of say and a lot of sway, then you are not, in my view, standing up for the most weak and vulnerable, and you are certainly... Uh, in contrar- contrariness to what should be the standards of medical ethics, not to mention human research. I mean, in human research, you're supposed to do animal testing before you even begin to do animal te- I mean, human testing. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it, it seems to me a little weird to say to a COVID-19 patient, your life doesn't matter enough. Let, let's just make sure that you sacrifice your own life to save lives of others. But there's no guarantee that that person who might submit to that sort of proposal would ever be saving a human human life. I mean, what is that all about? Well, they're, they're, the way they try to talk people into it, you know, elderly people, particularly uh, now, these are members of the greatest generation, right? Right. They were the people who went through World War II, the Depression, and so forth. And and so the, the selling point is that they're calling it extreme altruism. So they, they want to uh, uh, appeal to the self-sacrificial side of that generation, which was, we have to say, incredibly self-sacrificial uh, uh, for many, many years. And, but it's wrong to take elderly people like that who are going to be in a weakened state anyway, uh, who, who may be in, in extended care, who may not have a full uh, rationality that they had when they were younger, and, and try to kind of persuade them that they should be sacrificing themselves for the rest of society when they're the ones who are most at risk for this disease. Mm, man, that's so evil. Uh, you know, I'm wondering, too, when you're talking about the organ donation euthanasia proposals, would that be for elderly patients? Because it would seem in many cases elderly patients would not be good candidates for a lot of organ donations simply because of the elder, you know, older state of their organs. They may not be in good enough shape to want to, you know, a doctor wanting to be transplanting those particular organs. Or are they not the targeted group there? It's just other people. It would be organ donation, you know, euthanasia victims, potentially. Who, who is targeted here? for that? Well, that was, um, they put that in uh, and basically say, 
said, you know, a lot of times these organs might not be usable. Just if they died of COVID-19, the organs might not be usable. But they were riffing off of an, a previous article they wrote that was unrelated to the pandemic, in which they basically argued, and they had not been alone in bioethics, that where euthanasia is legal, rather than, and by the way, sometimes euthanasia and Organ harvesting are being conjoined. Yeah. In the Netherlands, they're conjoined. In Belgium, they're conjoined. In Canada, our closest cultural cousins, people go to hospitals, are killed, and their organs are harvested. And these people are killed long before they would have died a natural death. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, in Canada, if somebody asks for euthanasia, the organ uh, in Ontario, the organ procurement uh, nonprofit organization is contacted, and then the organization contacts the suicidal person and says, well, since you're going to be killed, can we have your organs? Oh, I mean, can you imagine? No. Without even any attempt at uh, suicide prevention. But what, what these authors have written previously and, and was uh, that anybody who wants to be euthanized uh, should be allowed to be euthanized not by lethal injection or assisted suicide, but by going into a surgical suite and having their organs removed while they are living, uh, which is just a sick, disgusting idea. And, of course, is contrary to everything that the uh, uh, organ transplant medical ethics are supposed to be about. The dead donor rule says you cannot take a vital organ unless the patient is, uh, is no longer a patient, but is a cadaver. Uh, and but this would would uh, allow a killing by organ donation by organ procurement uh, and um, uh, I quote a different um, article in the piece that we're referring to that was written that was um, I published in the American Spectator uh, an article in the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. I'll tell you what, hang on just a moment, Wesley. We'll come right back to that. We're going to take a quick break on Janet Meffer today. Coming back with Wesley J. Smith after this. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our Preborn Center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 to clinics if this goal is reached. And you can help. Call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible 
medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, you read some of this material put out by these bioethicists in some of these journals that a lot of us don't regularly read, if ever, and you just get a little bit more skeptical about the idea of putting our lives in the hands of experts. That's for sure. Wesley J. Smith is joining us, chair of the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, writer at National Review, and author of a great piece at the American Spectator called The Bioethicist Pandemic. I wanted to let you pick up, Wesley, where we unfortunately had to take a short break there. But we were talking about these Oxford professors uh, discussing the issue of organ donation, euthanasia. You were outlining some of the uh, policies that are horrific in places like the Netherlands and Canada for organ donation. But you were mentioning there was another publication also that, that touched on this issue. Uh, do you want to go on with that and where we were leaving off there right before the break? Sure. Sure. And, and the reason I'm mentioning this is that, uh, again, it's really important to understand that these are not obscure um, uh, kind of fringe uh, publications that these articles are appearing in, but as mainstream as you get. So there was a, I, I, I linked to one of them. It's called um, Heart Harvesting. It was published in the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. That's a medical journal. Mm. That's an internationally respected medical journal. And in, with all due respect and without criticism, in this journal, these uh, bioethicist authors argued that we, you know, it would be much better to get hearts that were alive when they were taken uh, rather than waiting for death because uh, organs can be damaged after, after people die. It's called warm ischemia. Uh, and so the, the euthanasia would be by removing the heart while the heart was beating. <sighs> That is really, really disgusting, and 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 again, not fringe. Uh, I'm not. I don't know whether that issue is a majority issue in bioethics, but it is. These kinds of advocacy pieces are clearly respected because they are being published in the most mainstream journals. If you said that somebody uh, should um, receive uh, some kind of uh, unethical care such as that based on race, you'd be called a bigot and properly so. Yeah. And yet they're saying that because somebody is, is dying or somebody might be disabled and want to die and want to be euthanized because euthanasia is not limited to the terminally ill, uh, that uh, they should be organ harvested as a means of euthanasia, much less being killed, is just a stunning thing to perceive. And uh, uh, there was, I even, I published, I, I, I linked to and quoted another article, which said, this was again in the Journal of Medical Ethics, uh, this is from several years ago, um, where, well, we want to f- learn how to engage in xenotransplantation, that is, using animal organs uh, for humans, in humans, because we have such an organ shortage, there are people dying on the waiting lists. And if we could, let's say, genetically engineer a pig and, and then use a, a pig kidney or a pig liver to save a human life, we should do that. However, there's a, there's a problem in terms of safety because there might be 
particularly germane today, there might be a porcine virus that could cross the species barrier right. uh, in such a procedure, right? And so these, uh, in, in the Journal of Medical Ethics, this was uh, a bit ago, um, these doctors and bioethicists suggested, well, let's use people in a persistent vegetative state, people like Terry Schiavo, uh, where you would, uh, as it was claimed about Terry Schiavo, I should say, <laughs> where we would take out their human kidneys and perhaps transplant them in a human and put in pig kidneys and keep them alive as long as we could uh, to see what happened. But we shouldn't call them patients because that gets in the way of what we want to do. We should call them living cadavers. Living cadavers. Is that kind of like jumbo shrimp? I mean, <laughs> what is that? That's a, a, a contradiction in terms, is it not? Well, you see, we have to we have to use euphemisms uh, because if we looked at uh, straightforward at the awfulness that we're proposing, we might not go for it. Yeah. Oh man, just the Orwellian speech there. Well, you know, when you talk about the living donors of their hearts, I mean, these guys could just partner up with the Chinese Communist Party and ISIS, right? Just you know, go get those beating right. hearts. What What's the difference if it's well, you know, if you're doing that in a medical setting versus as a terrorist or a communist? What's the more difference there doesn't seem to be any at all it's a it's a utilitarian type advocacy where whatever maximizes uh reduces suffering the most or causes suffering the least is is uh, deemed good as opposed to actual right and wrong so that we end up with a weighing and measuring of utilitarian benefits here's another one that i and this is much more recent than that pig experiment article there's a bioethicist named Thaddeus Mason Pope, who's becoming quite prominent, and he's, a, he's one of the foremost proponents of what's called VSED, Voluntary Stop Eating and Drinking. In other words, Ugh. suicide by starvation. Uh, and uh, the Compassion and Choices, which used to be called the Hemlock Society, actually has uh, material to teach people how to starve themselves to death uh, and uh, advo- advocates that doctors palliate the symptoms so that the self-starvation suicide could be successful. But Pope has gone even beyond somebody willfully starving themselves to death to say and write that people uh, who... Uh, are let's say diagnosed with dementia should should be able to fill out a living will or an advanced medical directive and and instruct future caregivers to withhold spoon feeding from them and water when they become incompetent in other words force caregivers to starve patients to death even if they willingly eat or drink mm. now this is just a god awful idea because you're not only uh, the the patient is not only committing suicide, but you're forcing people in nursing homes or perhaps family to participate in that awful act of yeah. self, of starvation. Yeah. And and don't think it would never happen, because Nevada has actually passed a law that authorizes just such advanced directive instructions to be issued. Yeah. This is the thing with bioethics. They are very influential, even though they're not up front on CNN or they're not up front on, um, in the newspapers. They have influence, and quite often things get passed in a legislature because they've testified or they've helped write legislation and so forth. And so Pope has been pushing this for a long time. I don't know that he had any, anything to do with the Nevada law or not, but Nevada has now legalized his pernicious advocacy. That's so crazy. this is not just arguing about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. 
bioethics is about changing policy and imposing values that most of the people in this country, I don't believe, follow. No. And how can you proclaim yourself as a bioethicist when you're showing no ethics at all in situations like that? And what you're saying there, the danger is most people have no idea who these men are. You follow them very closely. Thank the Lord for that, because that's how we all learn about it. Is there any organized group that opposes these bioethicists? Is there any other organization that would write back to some of these journals and push back and say, you shouldn't be printing this garbage. This is ghoulish. Uh, the, I wouldn't say organized. Of course, there are people who uh, might have a modifier in front of the term bioethicist, like Catholic or Christian or yeah. conservative right. or pro-life. So there, of course, there are people engaged in the field who, who believe in the sanctity of human life. And uh, there's a fellow uh, at Fordham University, Charles Camosi. Uh, if uh, your listeners have been watching Tucker Carlson at all, he's kind of become Tucker Carlson's go-to bioethicist. Now, he has a very moral approach, and he's been warning uh, on Tucker Carlson that we should not uh, discriminate against elderly people in this COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, people like um, uh, Richard Dorflinger, who used to be with the Catholic bishops, people like Robbie George of Princeton, who is not really in the bioethics department, he's in political science and English, but he gets involved in these issues. People like uh, Yuval Levin and a few others, there are people out there, but they do not have the sway, and there are not nearly as many of that type of uh, person uh, as is the mainstream view, which is which really uh, does have the predominant uh, um, influence in, in public policy. Uh, in fact, just to show you how that works, you may remember when George W. Bush was president and the stem cell, embryonic stem cell fight got going, I was deeply involved in that. Um, the, the president, President Bush, uh, W. Bush, uh, appointed Leon Cass uh, to head the President's Council on Bioethics. Now, Leon Cass is is a, uh, a very, uh, was a, and is a very prominent bioethics kind of pioneer, but he believes in the unique dignity of human life. And the howling and screaming from the predominant bioethics community, because Cass had been uh, appointed to lead this commission, was deafening. Hmm. Uh, one, one prominent bioethicist even called him an assassin, <laughs> Uh, in uh, publishing, and I think it was called the uh, a piece in the American Journal of Bioethics. I might be wrong about where it was, but he called him a, an assassin because he was opposed to human cloning research. Mm-hmm. So, so you can see that when there is any chance for conservatives, to, for want of a better term, or uh, dignity of life bioethicists to have real influence, the the uh, the agony and the screaming and the anger within the mainstream community is is uh, quite pronounced. So that tells you everything you need to know about where this movement seeks to take us. Yeah. What are your fears about where this is all headed when you talk about the bioethicist pandemic? What 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 are your worst nightmares here in terms of what kind of domino effect may occur that will affect us in the coming days? Well, if you decide if you decide you're going to violate the sanctity of human life, because we're in a uh, dire catastrophe, which of course we are, well, that doesn't mean that that violation goes away when the catastrophe eases. Right. In fact, you've created precedent and you've created expectations, and and, and it's like in law. I'm a lawyer. Uh, bad facts make bad law, right? Right. Well, the same thing would apply here. If you have these awful circumstances and you engage in unethical 
approaches, those unethical approaches have now been established as acceptable. And that doesn't mean they go away. In fact, they become the new launching pad for the next round of even more unethical approaches. So what we have to do is fight this at every turn. Wow. Well, that is such important information. Wesley J. Smith, you can read it over at spectator.org, the bioethicist pandemic. Thank you, Wesley. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Phyllis Schlafly was one of the great conservative heroes of the 20th century, having first come to national prominence by successfully mobilizing Americans against the ERA, or Equal Rights Amendment. Well, now Hollywood is putting its own spin and smear on Phyllis Schlafly and her legacy in a nine-part TV series on FX Hulu called Mrs. America. But in the Hollywood tradition of smearing conservatives, this TV series gets a whole lot of Phyllis Schlafly wrong. And so we're going to find out the truth now from Phyllis's daughter, Anne schlafly Corey. And great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on your show, Janet. Oh, glad to have you here. Set the record straight here, but let's let's start with this. How far in advance were you aware that they were going to put out this TV show about your mother? And to what extent did they involve you in any of the research on your mom? Well, they didn't involve me at all. I asked and was rebuffed, but they've been in production for some time. I first learned about it about two years ago, and it's an all-star cast, and they have an all-star agenda to uh, bring back uh, feminism and bring back the Equal Rights Amendment. And to, to that end, they fictionalize my mother, and they make her into somebody that she was not. For those of us who knew her, it's really shocking the way they portray her as power mad and um, and and not um, and not the heroine that we all knew. Yeah. What, what? Where would you begin in critiquing this particular series? How did they get your mom wrong fundamentally in terms of her character, in terms of her personality? What do you observe first and foremost when you're watching it? Well, my mother was able to be an inspiration to women, and she ran a women's organization because women admired her, followed her, and she inspired them. What this show portrays her as is being cold, cruel, calculating, and dismissive of her own supporters. Mm. Now, you can't have a successful organization if you are so condescending to the people who are following you. Right. Well, and you say they also mischaracterize some of the characters and they're real people like your aunt, right? They, they <laughs> totally misconstrued who she is. Well, part of their uh, agenda was to, was to show this idea that, that my mother didn't care about women who were never married or that women who didn't have children. And so they make up this whole plot line um, portraying my aunt as a wallflower uh, and uh, completely cowed by my mother. None of it is true. My aunt very successfully ran her own organization for 50 years. She fully supported everything that my mother did. And probably more importantly, when Phyllis and Eleanor were in a room together, 
Eleanor dominated. She was a force of wills. Man, but but in the the series, they portray your mom as the dictator and your aunt as the willing, subservient sidekick. Well, and I think that's another point of where they miss Phyllis. Phyllis was not a dictator. She got where she got by controlling and inspiring and mentoring women, not by telling them. Right, right. That's so true. Uh, Something else that you've talked about is the fact that Mrs. America slurs by innuendo, for example, on the issue of race. What, What is in the series that gets into that particular topic? Well, they have this um, um, scene wherein uh, some um, fictional supporters of Eagle Farm, these are totally made-up characters because they couldn't find real-life people to to be these, uh, uh, who actually said these things. But they show these fictional characters um, saying some some really ugly words. Uh, And it wasn't true. And we know who was the leader of the Louisiana uh, Eagle Forum, and she never would have done anything like that. And here's how you can tell it wasn't true, because they they try to pretend that there was a connection with the Ku Klux Klan. But of course, the KKK was a Democratic Party operation and never had anything to do with conservative Republicans. That is disgusting. What about your dad? Because how do they portray your father in the series as opposed to, you know, in real life, what he was like? Well, they portray him as an insensitive brute, but I think it's because they don't have a sense of humor. My father had a very acute sense of humor, and he always liked to joke about being called Mrs. Phyllis. I mean, it was something that he relished. Yeah. Uh, and and so his great line that he often said, and I think this is where the producers missed the humor of it, he said, I regret that I have but one wife to give to my country. <laughs> That's good. I like that line. That's funny. <laughs> but that's terrible. Well, that's how he was. And yeah. they, they've, they've drenched all the humor out of it. Because, I, you know, if you, if you see people as flat, evil, demonic people, you can't flesh them out with the real humans that they were. Right. Well, and if they wanted to accurately portray your mother and father, they might have actually worked with you, you know, to find out what they were really like. I mean, do they give some sort of caveat in the series? I haven't seen it, but do they give a caveat in the series? This is not a a biography. You know, we're not trying to be literal here. This is a fictitious entertainment thing. Do Do they give any caveat of that sort? Well, the beginning of it has a line that it is based on true events, but but some characters and dialogue are made up. But it's a lot of characters and dialogue, and it's made up on the right side. They don't, they're not making up characters on the left side. Hmm. They're only making up the fictional characters to drive the story on the right side. So to that end, they make up a fictional character who becomes disillusioned with Phyllis. Hmm. I mean, that's how far they have to go to press their own agenda. I mean, the producer was actually quoted as saying that she didn't want to talk to me because she didn't want the facts to get in the way with her telling of the story. Why let the facts get in the way of a good story? That's always a good mm-hmm. thing. Going into a biographical series, you don't want to find out what the actual facts are. That's just despicable, though. Have you been in touch with them at all since this series has run? Have you had any opportunity to speak with any of the people involved in the production and air some of your concerns directly to them? Well, I've asked, but they wouldn't even give me an advanced copy of the show. They said, no, you can't have a screener. Wow. 
That's so they've got their own point of view. But you know what? It's also an opportunity for people to learn about this remarkable story and an opportunity for me to talk to you. Because look at it. This woman came from a small town in the middle of the country, and yet we're four years after she's dead, we're still talking about her. That's it's right. truly a remarkable life that's worth learning about. And so we put out our own website to uh, show the, you know, not the Hollywood version, but the true version at mrsamerica.org. That's great. That's great. So people can go there. What would you most like people to know about your mom? Obviously, she was very famous. Lots of people felt like they knew her because they followed her work so close, closely and were involved in a lot of what Eagle Forum did. What would you most want to stress to people who knew nothing about your mom what the truth was about her in terms of her personality and what sort of person she was to you, you know, who would know her better than anybody? Well, I think, and, and the, the, the fictionalized version totally misses this. Her core belief was her faith in Jesus Christ as her Savior, and that informed every political decision she made. So she never flip-flopped throughout her 70-year career, because she had integrity based on her core faith. And that is something that is for all of us to remember in this era of, of you know, wild talk, is that if you stick to your true beliefs, you will always remain a model of integrity and a model of how to present yourself in the public sphere. Because she, she was able to descend, dis- dissent from the other side graciously and beautifully, and everyone knew where she stood at any time. There was no waffling with her. That's right. Well, and she was so effective. She was so smart and articulate and all the rest. When you look at this whole thing, obviously there's an agenda here. I know you and I have talked before about the left's drive to try to reinvigorate the ERA. Is that really what you think the bottom line is? They need to demonize your mother so that they can convince an ignorant younger generation who didn't know much about her that the ERA is needed more than ever? And not just ERA. I think I think abortion is the key element of it. Um, they devote uh, several of the episodes to the the push on abortion rights in the 1970s. And it's clear from this Hollywood version how important that issue is for the left more than any other issue. Well, and I think how how cre- how clearly they define it. He is a learning for all of us. Absolutely. Well, you can go to mrsamerica.org, as Ann Schlafly-Corey points out, and find out the real Phyllis Schlafly. And thank you so much for being here, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. COVID-19 is creating a surge in unplanned pregnancies as Americans shelter in place. Meanwhile, preborn crisis lines are flooded and we have quadrupled our patients seeking abortions. Your help is needed now more than ever as clinics had to cancel spring fundraisers. Would you consider sponsoring an ultrasound to introduce moms to their preborn babies? When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn is able to send $100,000 to clinics if this goal is reached. You can help. Call 855-402-BABY now. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855 855- 
402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Once again, call 855-402-BABY or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. It is quite amazing how many churches are beginning to push back against their governmental entities, whether it's a mayor or a governor, and saying, listen, we don't like your shutdowns anymore. We don't think they're constitutional. We have been willing to sit on the sidelines and do online church, but enough is enough. How long are you going to keep us in chains, so to speak? And in Illinois, it's really reached this insane level. Governor J.B. Pritzker, who's a super progressive, has already been sued by a couple of different churches, the beloved church in Lena, Illinois, and the also the North West Bible Baptist Church, represented by Jeremy Dyson, First Liberty Institute. We talked to him about that case last week, but they have this reopen Illinois plan, giving guidance to schools and businesses and churches about when they'll be allowed to reopen. Right now, they're in phase two of the plan. In phase three, you can have gatherings of up to 10 people. In phase four, you can get up to 50 people, but you can't have a gathering of more than 50 people until phase five. And even Pritzker acknowledged that could take more than a year to get to phase five. I, you know, how long those people who have said it's fine for churches to be shut down out of a concern for public health and safety, do you just put an infinite number on that? They can shut us down for 25 years. You know, health and safety, there are viruses out there. We really need to be cognizant of the fact that we could get sick if we have church, you know, as if none of us could ever get sick in church before. And I'm not saying the coronavirus is on par with the flu necessarily in terms of its contagion and all the rest. I know all these arguments. I'm going to skip over them because you know I know these things. But here's the point. You have what's going on in Illinois, not just staying in Illinois. You have all kinds of people who are suing their states, churches who are suing their states, who are recognizing you guys are really pushing us here. And at what point do Christians need to gather in person again? There's some churches that need to gather, I think, more urgently in some cases, like that one church that has ministry to drug abusers and uh, people who need in-person care and ministry. But then you say, well, we've been shut down a long time. We haven't had communion in weeks, right? We haven't been able to have Koinonia for weeks. We haven't been able to you know, get anybody baptized for weeks. Don't those things matter too? Nobody wants to be reckless. All these churches are talking about social distancing and wearing face masks and taking all the necessary precautions. They're not trying to throw caution to the wind, but there is a point at which they say, if I can go to Walmart, why can't I have church? Which is a good question. Now, WGN-TV reported on the whole situation with Northwest Bible Baptist Church and some of these other churches pushing back in Illinois. Jeremy Dyson, we talked to last week from First Liberty, was interviewed here. This is cut one. 
if you're allowed to shop down the grocery aisle, if you're allowed to gather in the plumbing section of Home Depot, you should be able to safely gather also in person at your church. The church says it will require face coverings and take parishioners' temperatures as they enter. Seat families six feet apart in every other row of pews, use a deposit box for offerings, close child care and Sunday school, and ask those 65 and older to stay home. Well, I haven't seen that letter. The governor asked about the communication at his daily briefing today and if he plans to enforce his executive order banning gatherings of 10 or more. I have discouraged local law enforcement from arresting people. Um, I have not discouraged them from reminding them what their obligations are to each other. And I would think that a house of worship and a pastor would know better uh, and not uh, encourage their parishioners to put themselves and their families in danger. Well, that is just amazing. Are they really in that much danger if they're social distancing and wearing masks like you require in Walmarts? That, that's where it gets a little confusing. Now, they also go on to talk about the county sheriff's department getting this letter. This is cut to. Hayden County Sheriff Ron Hain uh, sent us a statement. He says he confirmed he did receive this letter from the church, saying that they uh, have shared their plans for reducing attendance numbers, encouraging the susceptible to not attend, and requiring PPE to enter their building. We will work with our health department and state's attorney's office to address violations of the governor's executive orders while preserving citizens' constitutional rights. Now, under the governor's Restore Illinois plan, gatherings of 50 or more more are not supposed to be allowed until phase five. That's when a vaccine or treatment is available. Some of these churches, they say that wait is just too long for them. Well, think about this for a moment. That That's quite amazing. Phase five can't begin until a vaccine is widely available or a highly effective therapeutic drug is released. That can be 12 to 18 months away, according to Dr. Fauci. So you're really going to keep the churches of Illinois closed down for 18 months? We're all at the whim of Fauci and an executive order from J.B. Pritzker in order to assemble ourselves together, as the book of Hebrews talks about? Is there not a line between the First Amendment and sensible health care directives that needs to be figured out? Because this is just insane. How long will you submit to being closed down? When is it safe to go out there? Who knows? Who knows anymore? <laughs> Who knows anymore? It's very difficult when you're looking at the, the modeler of all this, as we've discussed with Dr. Andrew Boston recently, Neil Ferguson, who's now been, you know, the, the big modeler over in the UK who got in trouble for his non-lockdown activities, shall we say. I mean, who do you trust anymore? That's fundamentally what's going on here. Now, I want to talk about some of these other states that have pushback. Here, for example, is a story in the Daily Signal about 170 pastors in Virginia plus are saying enough. They have sent a letter to Governor Ralph Northam asking him to modify two executive orders to allow religious gatherings at least once a week. This is part of what they had to say. The Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a hospital for the spiritually sick, yet corporate worship services of more than 10 people have been banned in Virginia since March 23rd. Prohibiting corporate worship services has exacerbated the sense of sorrow, isolation, and fear felt by so many citizens across the Commonwealth. So that's a letter, but you also have a lot of law Lawsuits. You have this story here, for example, from the Detroit News. Michigan church leaders sue to stop Whitmer's stay home order. Three Michigan church leaders, including the state house speaker's father, 
filed suit against Governor Gretchen Whitmer's stay-home order in federal court, arguing it violated their First Amendment rights to free exercise and to assembly. Here's another story. Ten Oregon churches sue the governor there, want to worship without restrictions amid the coronavirus pandemic. This was a lawsuit that was just filed, and Salem-based attorney Ray Heck said, if we're risking our lives to go to church, if we survive, great. If we die, then we're going to heaven. If we want to take that risk, then it's on us. And I thought when I read that quote, he is touching on something that I think a lot of us feel. Life is not without risk, is it? I'm not saying a pandemic is something we face all the time. We've never faced it before. And I'm not trying to be anti-science and I'm not trying to be an anti-vaxxer and I'm not trying to say the government is completely evil and there's nobody trustworthy in the government. I'm not one of those people. But on the other hand, life is a risk. Everything you do in life is a calculated risk. And in this era of safe spaces, I think there are many Americans who just don't grasp that. You are taking a risk every time you get behind the wheel of a car. You're taking a risk when you walk down a sidewalk. You're taking a risk when you go into your bathtub, for heaven's sake. Look at the statistics on people who are hurt or even die after they fall in their bathtubs. Now, do we stop taking baths? Do we stop getting behind the wheel of a car because we understand that there is a risk? No, because we have to function. We have to bathe. We have to go places. It's a calculated risk. And you should be careful about the risks that you take. It's a far cry from handcuffing yourself and jumping out of an airplane and seeing what happens if you try to open your parachute with your foot. That's a dumb risk because you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to die. But it seems to me that the coronavirus shutdowns are somewhere in the middle between those two things. And it is very important in the midst of all of this, in my opinion, that the Constitution be followed. Regardless of what the emergency is, the Constitution has to be followed because we have to go on with life at some point. We have to go on with life to the best of our ability. And if you have churches who say, we want to gather, but we'll be very, very careful. We'll do all of the things that you are requiring some of these essential businesses to do with face coverings and with, you know, sanitizer and social distancing and all the rest. But good grief to shut us down totally. That almost seems hostile. Let's see. There's another church in Maine. Calvary Chapel is suing in Maine over this order barring in-person worship services. Also in Minnesota, two Twin Cities churches and several business owners are calling on Governor Tim Waltz to end what they call an unconstitutional and draconian scheme to close them during the pandemic. That's from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And you have in Maryland, three Maryland state delegates and several Maryland pastors and businesses have filed a lawsuit in federal court against Governor Larry Hogan. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. On and on and on. And I think it's just going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out in the end. I thought this was an interesting thing in the Maryland case. The complaint states the governor has purported to become bishopric and pastor to every church in Maryland by deciding when, where, and how each church shall worship God. That's a very interesting phrase. It's a very interesting point that that complaint is making because it's true. It's really true. If we're going to have a separation of church and state, how closely do we need to adhere to that separation that the liberals love to tout when we're in good times? Get the church out of the state. Well, get the state out of the church. We'll be cautious. We'll be careful. But you can't just unilaterally shut us down. We're not China. At least not yet. Hopefully never. We got to leave it there. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.